and welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. I'm Angus Storey and with me is Kieran Swan. In this episode, we're going to be talking to Lawrence Cox. Lawrence is an activist and writer on social movements, working class community activism and global justice struggles. He's been involved in several publications in, that are included in the archive. Uh, and Cairn, a magazine for environmental and green movements associated with the Green Party in the 1990s. And Ireland from Below, uh, which is an independent newspaper for social movements and activists in the 2000s. He's currently an editor of Interface, which is an online journal for and about social movements with a global scope. Uh, Lawrence is Associate Professor of Sociology at Maynooth University. His books include uh, Why Social Movements Matter, which was published in 2018, and most recently, The Irish Buddhist, The Forgotten Monk Who Faced Down the British Empire, which tells the story of a working-class Irishman who became a leading Buddhist reformer and anti-colonial activist. So we'll be talking to Lawrence about both the organisational aspects of being involved in left political and activist publications um, and the shift from print to online publishing, as well, of course, as the politics of the publications and how they fit in the Irish left and in the history of social movements. So you can see examples of each of these publications in the archive. Uh, we'll include links in the podcast notes. Please do also check out interfacejournal.net. The most recent issue on organising during COVID-19 has articles on a huge range of movements around the world. The Irish Left Archive, you can visit at leftarchive.ie and if you want to get in touch with us, there's a contact form there or send us an email uh, and so on. So uh, thanks again to Lawrence for giving us his time and thank you for listening. Uh, Lawrence, thank you for joining us. Mm, thanks for having me. I wanted to start by asking you about Uncaring magazines. Um, or maybe do you want to do you want to tell us a little bit about that project yourself initially? An overview. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think looking back, what's interesting is this was kind of the end of um, a certain kind of print activism, not just for us, but for lots of different things. Um, so. I think that that issue that you've got there has got the records of a get-together between different alternative print, uh, more or less activist zines across Ireland in perhaps 98, 99, when it still just about made sense to do that. So it still made sense to physically crank these things out, staple them, put them around, leave copies around. Um, and within a very few years after that, that had largely ceased to happen. So Community Media Network did uh, a special issue of their print scene about such things. Um, also around the same time, and then you could see that the politics of it had simply ceased to make sense in most cases. Mm. So if you could do something genuinely commercially, bring in ads, organise distribution, sale through shops and so on, or if you could piggyback something on a big political organisation, that would still make sense in this century. But if you were doing small runs of things and you were trying to reach a wider audience, the internet became really in a very short space of time the sensible way to do it. Yeah. Right. And that That's was quite a strange shift. So Are it's we... kind of strange to think back. Were you doing yeah. the two in conjunction? I know you had... Um, have the website of it, but was that there at the outset or where did that come in? 
The website was there at the outset because one of us was very good online, uh, hosted it, though now you have to dig through the Wayback Machine to actually find um, yeah. any of that. Uh, but it was hosted simply as discrete articles and not everything. There was you know, no such thing as a PDF downloadable mm. issue. A lot of the material simply wasn't there. And it was kind of up there online because for really small, small scale stuff like this was, um, you were aware that there were people who might be interested internationally. Okay. They weren't so much going to find it even, sorry. <clears throat> they weren't so much going to find it even by Googling. They were going to find it because you sent them an email or you put something on a mailing list saying, hey, this is here. Mm-hmm. And they might and have a look at it, as opposed to literally um, sending you their address and you go and pop it in an envelope. Oh, so was the... the... Still an adjunct to the print version. Yeah, did you have a sense of, like, so was there a widish distribution of this, would you say, or was it fairly limited, looking back? Um, it was... So it, it was associated with the Green Party, mm. uh, who assisted with uh, free postage, particularly. Okay. Yeah. So it went out to all party members, which mm. was probably a few hundred people. Right. Um, from memory, typical print run was about a thousand. Okay. Uh, so that's a few hundred party members maybe by the end of it, one to 200 people who told us that they wanted copies Mm. uh, and others sort of deposited in strategic places uh, with an invitation to people to take. (laughs) And it was, I mean, it's, you know, it's remarkably elaborate production in a sense. I mean, this is, we're not not even getting to the content yet, but just in terms of there's a certain sort of uh, tactile quality to the paper used. Um, It's, lovely format you have illustrations throughout and all the rest of it i mean there was a lot of care and attention put into this obviously certainly at the point Mm. which we've actually got copies now i don't know did that change as time went on or did you feel that that transferred on to the online uh, aspect of this yeah and i should say the artwork there is mostly donna cooney who is or was still a green party councillor north dublin Mm. Uh, and was quite an artist mm. uh, and people who helped with layout and we stole quite a lot of um, stuff in the days when you had to really go and scan it and I was thinking that <laughs> treat, treat it as clip art yeah it, wa- it wasn't all original art and that's fairly obvious um, <clears throat> so how did that come about I mean it was a big group production so there were Probably there were a dozen people fairly closely involved with bringing it out. Wow, every issue. Yeah, uh, uh, over kind of about five issues and five or six years. So that's probably two dozen people in total were involved in editing it. Okay. And they wanted to make it something that you would actually read, something that you would like. Mm. Uh, There was obviously a significant zine culture at the time. Mm. Um, but it was, so it was oddly positioned between, on the one hand, a sort of party theory journal, like the yeah. work 
He had a very good thing around that time. <laughs> His name completely escapes. Times change. Times change, yeah. Left. Was that Dem left? Democratic left, yeah. It was yeah. Um, falling on from making sense from the Workers' Party, which at the split, That's right. yeah. Paddy yeah. Gillen et al. all went over to Democratic mm-hmm. left, yeah. Yeah. So, so you had those kinds of things which were much more professionally done in a lot of ways. Mm. You know, sharp paper, uh, quite journalistic, quite about the issues and so on. Mm. Uh, and then in the rest of the Green Party, there was a sort of party bulletin, which was pretty much um, dates for next events and raffles and so on and so forth. Okay. So what we were trying to do, I suppose it comes to the substance, is we were trying to make a space for movements to talk to each other mm. um, with the Green Party not necessarily as the be-all and end-all of that. Yeah. That, it's so, interesting. Sorry, go on. Apologies. No, go on. Well, it's just it's interesting because I think that's Angus and I, when we were re-looking at it again, what was remarkably interesting about <clears throat> it was it was very Green Party adjacent Mm. And very Green Party adjacent, but yet there was still this sort of, and I think we were just discussing how critical it was in some ways, not of Mm. the Green Party as a party, but of, should we say, certain manifestations of activities that the Green Party have been involved in politically, or or even that's probably drawing the net too wide. Just it seemed to be Mm. certainly a critiquing journal, for the want of a better word, which was quite unusual for something that obviously was under the ages, because I think you thank in the document you thank mm-hmm. the Green Party TDs for their assistance, Trevor Sargent and John Gormley. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, do you care to expand on that? <laughs> well, so, um, well, let's carry on coming at this from the organisational point. Sure, we- absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah politics. Um, so organisationally, you don't want to dump people in it, obviously. Mm. Um, it had zero budget. Uh, anything that actually happened there, paper, printing, postage and so on, somebody providing. Now, some of those TDs were also writing pieces for it, uh, helping in various other ways. Were most people like Green Party members or Green Party adjacent? That was one other thing that kind of made me wonder. Those people. So, yeah, let's take it to the politics. It's a very weird version of the Green Party. So... Um, I had been involved in the party earlier um, in a limited way, and then I'd got quite involved in France and then again in Germany, um, Mm. in Hamburg, where the party was very much a a left-wing thing, and the German party had understood itself as having come out of social movements, right? So Mm. it understood Mm. itself having come from the movement against nuclear power, uh, the anti-war movement, the women's movement, various things like that, Mm. as well as from the serious left. Yeah. 68 radical left. Right. Um, So when I came back to Ireland, uh, various people who shall definitely remain nameless tapped me on the shoulder and said, we need somebody to do a a journal for the Green Party. We think it should be you. Okay. <laughs> quite You're forgiven volunteer. for that. Yeah, I was volunteered to do this. Uh, but the idea was, yeah, that the party needed a bigger picture um, because there were certainly quite a lot of local party groups. Uh, it transpired, and you can see that to this day, 
were in effect little elect me committees that were very, very local. Um, I'm just curious, you know, coming from a German context where there would be certain green strands within the green, or left strands within the green movement, did you find, well, I mean, in one sense, did the green movement in Germany see itself as an explicitly left-wing movement? I mean, that's a a discussion almost for a different day, but Uh, then when you come back to Ireland, I mean, was there any commonality of thinking here in respect of that? Because it does strike me on Quairon, does Mm. appear to position itself within a left environmental ecological discourse more than any other that I can fathom Mm. at it. Yeah, well, I think... You know, we we positioned it very straightforwardly as this is about movements talking to each other. Mm. Uh, And there is also a party political end to that. Mm. But you have to remember the Green Party at this point did not have, for example, an unambiguous pro-choice position. So they still had very very odd version of consensus decision-making which meant that what was actually a small rump of Catholic fundamentalists could block the party from having a a clear view on that. Wow, okay. So, yeah. So having feminist material was in some ways much more controversial than some of the the stuff in that issue, which critiques the green relationship to the state, which would have gone right over a lot of people's heads. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Not being mean to people, but it was irrelevant to people. Whereas uh, stuff about this being like the late 80s, sorry, this being the late 90s, Mm. um, issues around women's rights and LGBT rights uh, were very definitely not above people's heads. They were potentially very contentious. Wow, that's very interesting. I I had a hint of that. Looking in from the outside, I was... Well, I'd left yeah. the L by then, but yeah, I had a hint of that from, yeah, yeah. Hmm. And of so, course, there, yeah. So that, that was more controversial. And the idea that it was worth thinking about things in an ideological way was upsetting to the local, to some of the sort of local elect me committees. Okay. Okay. Be particularly, uh, I want to say, in the greater Dublin area, because down the country then, as I think now, it was very common for, in a smaller place, you, if you were at all environmentally minded, you'd be in the Green Party, mm. because in between campaigns, it was the thing that was there. Mm. So uh, rural Greens were often a very, very wide span of positions, okay. whereas in Dublin and probably Cork as well, uh, you could be in a more specific environmental or political or whatever campaign if you wanted to at any point so if you've consciously chosen to be in the green party you either had that bigger vision of well we need to change things systematically Mm. or you had this really quite small vision oh we want to get you know john gormley elected we want to get trevor Sargent elected we want to get um, roger garland elected having been the first td you know who would have been among that um anti-choice crew for example that's interesting and it's interesting how that isn't in a sense that that tension within the gp doesn't seem to be reflected too much in the contents of on no. it, it, it's going in a completely different direction yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, but yeah there, there were people who did not like that <laughs> is it is it fair to say that it does 
reflects somewhat uh, I mean the Green parties in the 90s are throughout Europe are kind of dealing with with that issue of party professionalization mm-hmm. that shift from activism and the, I, I think the copy we have is from 98s um, yeah. so at the same time the German Greens went into coalition for the first time, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I just noticed because looking through the document again, there's an article there from John Gormley about mm-hmm. party structure and how the Irish party mm-hmm. would address um, an opportunity for coalition, for example, uh, mm-hmm. which didn't obviously arise for some time for the party. But um, mm-hmm. do you think that's um, that it's serving two sort of roles there? I mean, you mentioned that it's mm-hmm. wanting to be about activism and for um speaking to other movements but at the same mm. time it's serving as somewhat as a party vehicle in in that sense as mm. well i think and i don't want to speak for him because uh, we'd have very different views but i imagine john's piece was intended as an argument within the party mm-hmm. um and certainly part of so i left the party really only a couple of years after that, and it was over the issue of uh, coalition. Mm-hmm. There was an attempt to get the um, the Ardesh to pass a motion saying, rejecting coalition with Fianna Fáil, mm-hmm. uh, which was then what seemed to be likely. Uh, and John and others were very much uh, against tying their hands as they would have seen it. Okay. So that was a shot across the bows in those terms, but um, John had been a language teacher, I think. Uh, and like some of the more conservatives in the party, did feel that the party needed a bigger strategy. Mm. Um, you know, it wasn't such an un- uncommon thing to think. So there were the very localist committees, and there were these, even on the right, these broader views. What had happened internationally, and I hope this won't be too confusing in podcast terms, the Mm. German Greens had initially understood themselves very much on the left. Mm. So in the first European Parliament where they were elected, they buddied up with a bunch of left nationalist parties from the European fringes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't... So... Republican um, left in Catalonia, that sort of thing. That kind of thing, yeah. I can't yeah. remember the details. Um, and then they were kind of called to account by other Green parties who said, no, basically what we need is a franchise of Green parties. Mm. This may be where your German hearts lie, your West German hearts, of course, it still was at this time. But no, actually, what we need is a pan-European federation Um So that would have been, it was that framework then that, for example, Patricia McKenna was elected to uh, when she was MEP. Uh, I was a a party rep to what was then the European Federation of Green Parties in this period. Okay. So in that period, then there was certainly a tension then between the Germans and the... Dutch had also come from a very left post-68 point of view. Mm -hmm. And a lot of parties that were in some ways quite like the Irish in that they were, they saw themselves as neither left nor right. uh, And the franchise, so to speak, had been really beneficial to them. Okay, yeah. 
say we are part of this bigger European thing okay. had helped considerably. Uh, and then, yeah, there were some some considerable tensions around that. So there was a sense inside the Green Party that it was going after this broader pan-European, we are green, which of course brings along with itself a whole bunch of assumptions sometimes that we are neither left nor right. Though sometimes not, obviously there are people yeah. that strongly yeah. left and not green. Yeah, and you know, Patricia obviously understood herself as being on the left, yeah. understood herself very clearly as feminist. And like a lot of um, Irish feminists, uh, ecological people, and some trade unionists probably in this period, felt that gains which had been made elsewhere in Europe could be kind of brought back to Ireland, even if there weren't necessarily local majorities for them. Yeah. Remember, this is still pre-Mary Robinson and so on. It's the aftermath of the Eighth Amendment. So there is this strong feeling that there are a lot of things which an educated we know to be right, but we cannot possibly win on the ground. And one of the things that um, the sort of editorial committee of Querhan argued for was, no, we can actually win this stuff on the ground. If movements. Yeah, and that's a very different worldview. Yeah, we don't need to be dependent simply on the European Parliament and European uh, legal system and journalists and academics and so on. And, 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 and it's sort of like trying to get around that lever, you know, and I've seen this yes. as well in other groups as well, you know, the, 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 the European community, I think, as was at the time, as the hmm. lever of change, yeah. which yes. in a sense is substituting that for, as you say, work on the ground. But would hmm. it be fair to say then, from what you're saying, and I'm hardly reading between the lines here, hmm. you, make a bre- you, you decide to move away, I guess, from the Green Party and then by the time that Ireland from below is coming up, I mean, what's the linkage between those two, you know, when we get to Ireland mm. from below? What happens in the interregnum between those two periodicals in terms of your positioning and your thinking? And, 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 and also, like, yeah. how did Ireland from below come to be? Okay. I, mean, I want to say neither of these are my projects. In oh, the yeah, process. of course. Of course. You're, you're involved. <laughs> in both, you're, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no absolutely. Time. Yeah, in both cases, people came along and said, Oi, you, let's do this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there had been that conflict within the Green Party over coalition, and it became quite clear that it was run by the people who wanted to bring it into coalition. Yeah. Uh, that, that group were in the saddle and were not really shakeable. Uh, But the other thing that had happened in the meantime, the issue you have is from 98, is um, the sort of echoes of the Zapatistas had started to come to Ireland. So we've got some connections there you can see in that last issue with the two Zapatista gatherings. Yeah. They held in Mexico and Spain trying to connect movements globally. Mm. I think with the Irish-Mexico group as well, which is the... Mm in effect, an offshoot of um, Latin America solidarity and workers uh, and the workers solidarity movement. Yeah. Um, Nobody in Ireland, to my knowledge, was involved in Seattle. uh, And I don't know of anybody who was involved in the June 99 um, protests in the city of London. Okay. that culture was certainly connecting. So it had already connected through 
um, British roads protesters getting involved around things like, I'd need to check the dates now, but um, Glen of the Downs, uh, I yeah. think where that kind of started to land. Yeah. And then Irish people certainly were involved in the Prague protests in the year 2000. Okay. Uh, and things like critical mass came across as well. And this, so geographically from the UK, but politically from this wider world of conversations between movements. So that was happening there. Um, so the movements that had coalesced around things like the German Green Party and, yeah, as you say, got more professionalised, more disappointing from a certain point of view in that party political space. Uh, the Zapatistas and the summit protests in, the, in Europe in the early 2000s, because then Genoa is 2001, mm. um, and that had significant Irish presence at... Um, that started to make those connections uh, at a new level. Okay. Uh, and if you wanted to be desperately stagist about it, you could say that some of the liberal revolution had finally started to happen in Ireland. Okay, which had its own effects, <laughs> its own ramifications, yeah. Right, because yeah. it, it's been a very long period in which people have said, well, do you know, first off, we just need to actually deal with the church. Yes. There is a whole kind of catching up with the West European neighbours. Yeah. Which has always been a hard argument to, to fight against. Um, but substitutionism so, yeah, again, you know. Yeah. So, so, so by the early 2000s, it's possible both in Ireland to see the limits of a purely elitist feminism, ecological movement or whatever. Yeah. And there is this new wave of mobilisation. So the Reclaim the Streets protest on Dame Street, where the guards go berserk, is 2002. Mm-hmm. In 2003, the World Economic Forum is feeling very worried about its legitimacy. Uh, Peter Sutherland, pull- so they want to have regional, i.e. continental meetings. Peter Sutherland pulls a stroke and gets them to bring it to Ireland. Right. And it took very little, it took about 150 people between um, the grassroots gathering and the Irish Social Forum uh, to get the event pulled. Uh, yeah. Because the guards couldn't defend Dublin Castle from 150 of us. Which, yeah. <laughs> um, precedent for that as well. <laughs> there, there are indeed, yeah. Um, And then 2004 was the Mayday uh, European Union Summit in Ireland. So by that point, uh, those movements in Ireland are thoroughly in communication. And uh, I suppose that uh, I'd need to go back and check, but I think the first grassroots gathering is probably around 2001. So it's been bringing those movements together at this point, deliberately below the level of political parties. Right, okay, yeah. Uh, not so much because people are bothered about the Greens, who mm. at this point don't want to, you know, sully themselves uh, as uh, in order to get out from under the Socialist Workers' Party in particular. Interesting. Uh, who, 
in the UK um, were trying very much to monopolize that movement and to put their branding on it. Yeah. yeah. And, you, and you can see that in SWP stuff, even in, or yeah. SWP at that point it, from you, in the archive, yeah. you see that as well around that period that is sort of real move towards yeah. engaging with it, I guess, for, is one way of putting it. Yeah. yeah, often in very unhelpful ways. So I, I think this is worth saying. Um, the Irish experience of Genoa in uh, 2001, July 2001. Mm. Uh, so I, I was following closely what went on in Italy, and there had been a NATO summit, I think, in Naples, which had been an absolute bloodbath. Mm. Um, and I went along to the meeting, uh, and said this, and said this will be brutal. And if you want to take people there, you need to do serious non-violence training, because this is what's going to happen. Mm. And was pretty much laughed out of it. Uh, they went. Uh, it was horrific. Uh, after which, um, Eamon Crudden, who's normally a good thing, made this movie, Berlusconi's Mousetrap, in which this was some cunning plan that mm -hmm. nobody seen coming and the answer is everybody had seen it coming if they paid attention to what Italians were saying. Yeah. yeah. There's no secret but it was this projection of Irish stories onto an international yeah. arena. Yeah. So you know we had very good reason to not want um, globalized resistance as they called themselves to own organizing. Yeah of course okay yeah. In Ireland um, or in the Republic, and there was a, um, how, what's the best way to put it? There was a kind of end of the war dimension to this as well, which is what had come out in uh, Reclaim the Streets 2002. Mm. It had evidently been going to seminars in Europe or in Britain, and they'd been shown photos of kids wearing funny clothes and told, these are your new subversives. Okay, all right. It's basic, yeah, it's a big chunk of what had happened. And okay. then, uh, the pushback that they got after uh, the events on Dame Street, you know, made it clear that they'd also misjudged okay. the situation. But from the point of view of the organised left, um, people were still very much in a world where you obeyed the cops, you obeyed the guards in the 26 counties. Mm. So there were two kinds of demos. Uh, there were ones with Republicans and travellers at them where, you know, the guards could do any, you know, could lay wild. And yeah. any other demo was um, stewarded by about 10 people. Okay. And they basically just made sure the roads were clear. Yeah. So, and that's partly because of the, you know, the legacy of the war. And it meant that all sorts of very serious people were quite nervous when we started doing direct action mm. and not obeying the cops. And we were saying, this is mm. not, you know, this is about not obeying the guards, but it does not, in fact, mean that we are starting a new war. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. That took a while to get through to people. Yeah. You know, it's, not a, it's not a massively difficult distinction to make, but yeah, I can see what you mean. Well, <laughs> you know, pe people uh, had been... You know, and in, in other contexts, clearly had to. So, say the Terence Wheelock demos, which were not long afterwards, yeah. had to really, uh, the older men had to really police younger men to make sure that they were safe. That was still true um, in working class areas. So, in a way, then, from what you're saying, Ireland from below was attempting to pull all these strands together and yeah. 
people involved, yourself included, were looking at these and saying, okay, there's campaign groups, there's activists. Um, I noticed like the WSM, an organizer mentioned their name checked in Ireland from below. Um, I think Angus was saying like campaigns mm-hmm. such as Rossport, the incinerator campaigns, the mm-hmm. EPA regulation, Quilch and Forestry and so forth, and this tar and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all of these build up a sort of area of, I guess, a point of conflict and activism and so on, which can then, you know, earn from below reflect in a sense. Would that be correct? Or that was the intent? Or uh, Well, from my side, anyway, <laughs> Um, you know, and remember that this is still the boom. This is 2005, 2006. Mm. So in this boom, it's not just working class community organizing. It's basically the organizations of every single social movement, women's, LGBT, environmental, trade union, everybody except the Republican movement and um, the anti-war movement. Uh, was in this situation of having been thoroughly NGOized, thoroughly brought with within partnership. So right. kind of organizing and direct action was a way of stepping below that uh, and seeing what was possible. Uh, the initiative, uh, I want to say, for Ireland from Below came from Robert Allen. So uh, Robert's a journalist. He had at that point, I think, spent quite a bit of time in England but he had previously done this book with uh, Tara Jones, Guests of the Nation, mm-hmm. People of Ireland versus the Multinationals, which was very much about things like the Merck Sharp and Dome incinerator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sort of rural conflicts over environmental issues that were not typically anti-development, but were asking the question, who is this development benefiting? Okay, yeah. So the, the kind of stuff that Rossport would would become. Uh, and Robert was keen to set this up um, as a kind of professional funded operation. So you can see it's actually got a price on it. Mm-hmm. And he spent weeks driving around the country, uh, delivering copies, talking to news agents, collecting sales, and so on. Um, yeah. Very, very energetic. Even, even in the format, I mean, it's um, it's tabloid esque, slightly larger than tabloid. Mm. Um, it's it's not exactly full color throughout, but it's partially full color throughout. You know, there's a sense of it's yeah. it's it's a very uh, I hate the word professional because it's a word I think has really negative connotations, but it's exceed, it's exceedingly well produced. Yes, yeah, and, yeah. and it looks great. Uh, and it's just such a contrast in a sense with Anquire Horn. But in terms of who was it for? Let's put it that way. So I'm not sure this was ever fully answered. Um, Robert's heart was very much um, in the countryside. Um, So he wanted those rural conflicts. That was what he was interested in. He'd previously been involved with a publication called, I think, Blue Green Earth. Stroke on Tull of Glass, Mm. which I think only existed online. I'm not sure there had been a print version. And he'd done it with one or two other activists, somebody in Galway, I think, and maybe one or two other people. 
So he was very interested primarily in chronicling those studies in this sort of idea of kind of a hidden Ireland and its you know, unexpressed radicalism. Um, and, you know, he was able to get it sold not just in health food shops, but in you know, regular news agents in small towns and so on. Um, big achievement. It would have been, personally, I think it would have been absolutely exhausting to keep it going. So the challenge for every left publication, Querhan didn't even really try to deal with this, but Robert did, I think, try and deal with it for Ireland from below, was um, Eason's. Yeah. So uh, right now there are two distributors in Ireland. It's Eason's and Argosy back then. I think there was Eason's plus one other. But basically, if you couldn't produce something regularly and reliably to their standards, which I imagine also involved organizational standards, you had to do your own distribution. And this was one of the really key technical reasons for moving online okay. was unless you were a funded operation, how the hell were you going to do that? How were you actually going to achieve that? Or if you were a party where you could actually have people going around giving out or selling the newspaper, fine. But otherwise you couldn't. Um, so that was that was a huge challenge. The other huge challenge, Robert was a professional journalist. It never fully became clear that he wanted the rest of us to help make this thing something which could employ a number of people on that basis and which would therefore produce material, sufficient material, sufficiently good quality to do that. Yeah. All of the rest of us were volunteers with you know lives you know jobs families mm. stuff or whatever uh, it being 2005 nobody was unemployed yeah um uh we were all activists and we were doing this kind of on top of that we yeah. thought it was a worthwhile step forward yeah as robert was starting from a vision for a magazine that he had mm. So it's almost uh, like a Gill kind of thing in a sense, but from a completely different political perspective, you know. A what thing? McGill, you know, it's like McGill or yeah. something. Like that sort of, you know. Yeah, yeah. One person's vision in a sense, and then that's writ large yeah. and it achieves yeah. or it doesn't achieve a life of its own. I, just, just sorry, I meant yeah. to say about the, mm. the, it's interesting you're saying about the professionalism as well, because uh, one thinks of how Easton's in a sense, on Fublix has never had a distribution deal through Eason's, as far as I'm aware, mm, mm, whereas mm. the Workers' Party were able to get look left in in the last five years or ten years. Mm. I was always intrigued by that, that all. Yeah, but so in a sense, again, it's like you know, I mean, there's politically it shifted because, in a sense, as you said, it's a, it's a reflection of the times. Things have moved on. You've got, um, in a way, almost, uh, uh, and it sounds odd because all of you would have been highly aware of the global side of things, but from the events of the late nineties that you've described and then on through mm. the early two thousands to the mid two thousands, mm. uh, 
perhaps an even more a greater sense of a global angle on all of this, that this is part mm. and parcel of struggles that aren't restricted to Ireland yeah. at all. Yeah. I mean, that would be another aspect to Anquerahan and Ireland from below, there's this distinction between the two and it's, it's moving to something completely, you mm. know, even broader again, even though the focus sometimes is very Irish. Yeah, and it, I think, I think there was a genuine question there, which, you know, obviously anybody in Irish movements keeps on coming back to, and rightly so, which is um, there's no point trying to simply impose uh, an outside idea uh, on Irish movements. So, you know, there's a lot of import-export, some of which works very well, but when it works, it works because of partic- you can do something Irish specific with this particular idea, organization or whatever here. Um, And there's a kind of middle class version of that, which is let's try and scrub up to be what we think Europe would like us to be, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, very clearly we need it because then as now, even when we have social majorities, which we often do, right? Mm. You know, so Ireland... Um, is one of the few countries where, in the world where the peasants ever got the land. Right? It's one of the few countries that defeated nuclear power comprehensively. Mm. It was a very early uh, break from empire in the 20th century. Um, you know, we do actually win things that there are social majorities, but political majorities escape us. Mm. So that question either of what can we learn from elsewhere or what alliances can we make elsewhere in order to change the, re- the real relationships here, I think is one that you just have to kind of keep on coming back to. Yeah. And, you and there's can, geographic you know, isolation as well, in a sense, yeah. we're, we're at the, we are literally at the edge of Europe. We're we at the edge of Europe, but, but we travel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> we come. <laughs> and that's not... That's not an elite thing to do in Ireland. You yeah. notice the difference if you spend time in England uh, or the US or whatever, that it's a perfectly ordinary Irish experience. And an awful lot of the Irish left working class as well as middle class has spent time in other countries. So that too obviously inflected Ireland from below as well. Um, I'm just wondering, should we move on to interface at this point? Because... Yeah, so let's yeah, let's look at interface. Um I think it's it's with I mean the interface is a, is something of a different project, right? It is more clearly oh. an a- academic project. Um and also considering we've been talking about that move from print into online, it's um oh. an online journal and doesn't yeah. aim to be aim to be I presume it doesn't have a print edition as well, does it? So it's um very rarely people have actually printed out full issues, but okay. since that's 500 pages, yeah. <laughs> an well, interesting I, exercise than anything else. I say else. that partly just because as a, as a publication, it does have the PDF. So we still sort of yeah. look at something as, as a bound yeah. volume somewhat, rather than yeah. just pages yeah. on a website. So that the... Um, I suppose that the form right. is still sort of there of a, of a publication of, yeah. a, of a print release. Um so it was let me see it was never intended to be a primarily academic publication um that's 
there, there's a sort of academic gravity because there's a whole institution that keeps on pulling stuff that way. And uh, I spend an awful lot of my time trying to hoik it in the other direction. Okay. Uh, recently with that issue you've seen, which was uh, very successful in that because um, mainstream journals found, say, um, submissions from women going down hugely because of care responsibilities and so on. So all the barriers involved in academic publication were in fact very exclusive. Mm. Uh, But when we said to people the opposite, we said, you know, we want really short stuff. This is not for peer review. We want you to tell us what your movements are up to. Um, And if you have a look at where people are, it's, you know, literally every continent except Antarctica um it's a great you know gender ethnic mix and so on and so forth uh, and pretty much everybody writing for it is an activist some of them are also phd students junior academics uh, but they're all coming out of movements so that was that that tension is there uh, and there's a reason for it which is this um social movements used to strategize about what they were up to because it's actually a really difficult thing to change the world. Mm-hmm. It's a really difficult thing to change the world. And at various stages, particularly in the post-68 period, a lot of that theorizing moved into academia. So Marxism did it first, but feminism, black studies, LGBTQ... Environmentalism in a rather different way through like philosophy and theology and so on. Mm. And what happens when you do that is there's still loads of space for outrage at how bad things are. And loads of space for deep theoretical analysis that shows how smart you are to understand just how bad things are and how many words you need to know to understand just how bad things are. But there is no premium whatsoever in academia for thinking about how to change it. Yeah. And we have lost an awful lot in that respect in terms of the degree of the capacity to think for ourselves institutionally that our, that our movements possess. Because so much of the thinking that's done around and for movements happens in academia or in commercial publishing Jacobin, keep case in point, but you could you know, name many, or in a space of sort of social media celebrity by people who are treating movements more as a market. They're not accountable to them. So there are far fewer people who are, you know, let's say um, an editor of a party journal. That's pretty damn rare these days. Uh, a celebrity who will reliably speak at your party's podium, sure. Uh, an, ac- uh, an allied academic, sure. So people who are organic intellectuals of movements or thinking coming out of movements, strategic thinking, it's, it's not at a premium. And what those logics prioritise is other things. So academia obviously has its own logic. But the question of what you can sell as radical theory or as things, opinions to be outraged about. That is not necessarily what wins. Yeah, we experience some of this in Ireland as the kind of Americanization of discourse. 
But it's not only that, it's also a pulling away from the kind of organizational skills that we've just seen erupt in the States, but which we virtually never hear about. Yeah. Yeah. We do not hear about the organizing that went on between Ferguson and now to make that movement possible. We hear about opinions and about language and about books about how bad things are. So that's a problem for us. Yeah. You know, if we want to win things, is and that that's kind of where interface came from. Then is activists who had got into academia because they actually wanted to know how to change things, not how to be outraged about things or how to describe the way things are, but how to change things. Um, and that that's the kind of core purpose of it. Okay. Okay. Do you think then? I mean, it sounds a little bit like we're we're back to that issue of professionalization to a degree. That it's it's is it fair to say that it's trying to draw in so much as that it professionalized aspect and that it has a sort of an academic face is to try and draw that back in to sort yeah. of gra- into back into the grassroots or back into activism, I suppose. Um. Or vice versa, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, no, fair enough. I mean, you know, I, I did some stuff around the time that we were bringing that out around Marxism and social movements. And part of the question was, well, can we kind of like, you know, reuse, recycle, repair and so on academic Marxism for movement use? Mm. So if this stuff has gone into academia, if it's got frozen there, can we nick it mm-hmm. in some way? And how do we do that? Um, And partly, so coming out particularly from the global justice movement, uh, sort of alter globalization, anti-capitalist, whatever you want to call it, the idea of learning from each other's struggles. So if we're talking to each other across different countries, maybe across different movements or issues, across different political traditions, then I'm less showing off you know, how good I am at uh, autonomist speak or you know, how right on I am in relation to this or that. I'm more trying to explain to you something that we actually, you know, we know how to organise this thing, but maybe we don't know how to get beyond it. Because def- one of the things that defines movements is they haven't won yet. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Movement exists not because it's cool, yeah, which is one of the things that we really lose in the commercialization and the social media, is to celebrate the thing that exists. No, you celebrate it when you've actually won. Yeah? Yeah. The existence of a movement is certainly a sign that a lot of people have got mobilized. It's not a sign that we're going to win. And in some of these cases, there are very good chances that we are not going to win. So there is an awful lot to be said for listening to each other more seriously about how do you organize stuff? How do you win things at smaller or bigger levels? Yeah. It's interesting because one of the things that's most um, fascinating about Interface is that it covers such a broad range of areas and yet it managed to kind of bring them together. So it's, you know, LGBTQ, feminism, uh, environment, labor struggles, and so forth. 
and sort of picking at migrant and refugee struggles. That's another one that comes to mm. mind as well. Mm. Um, it seems to be, and I think Angus, you said it provides a bridge between these different areas, is it, or maybe you were quoting that directly from it itself, but it's, it's um, this sense that there's this... Yeah, I think the, the phrase used on the, the website is, yeah, providing a bridge between academia and activism, which... Yeah, but also between I think these different areas themselves, oh, and maybe yeah. and but another side to that is the flip side of that is that it also or not the flip side, but it seems to me that there's also a very pragmatic view that, for instance, it's interesting you're saying about Marxism because I don't know if you're Marxist and in a sense it doesn't really matter, but you know you've obviously come from in I a think sense, I am, but other people might disagree. Right. <laughs> but I, I think the same about myself. But I'm never yeah. right, yeah. real Marxists with inverted commas might find me quite an offish, but. It, there's this sense of like seeing, you know, coming from an, a left environmental background and then moving to a position where you are today, or indeed, and I think many mm. people hear this. Uh, there's also a sense, and I mean pragmatic in the best possible sense, as to sit from the usual negative connotations of pragmatic, but the fact you're saying there, in a sense, there are these different practices born of political traditions, mm. competing political traditions, yeah. but that there's ways of picking out aspects of them. I mean, mm. right the way through this conversation, Zapatista, um, right the way back to environmental activism in Ireland in the 1970s, through to social sure. liberalist activism, through to mm. things that we're seeing today. Yeah. It's like, okay, there's means and there's ways of doing it. And if we're going to ignore people or if we're not going to bring them with us, then there's, there's going to be problems there. Um, mm. So would you say, I mean, who is this for? Is this for the activists? I, I know I was asking that about oh. Ireland below, but would you say this is for the activists at this point, or is this something that is, as it goes on, you see expanding out further? Um, it's very hard to know who reads something like this. Um, but we did uh, a reasonable kind of Facebook survey, and we find, yeah, um, a good proportion of our readers are activists. So not as many as, say, the grassroots gathering. I was delighted we did a survey one time. Three quarters of people there were actually involved in something. Right. I thought, fantastic, you know, because the normal numbers of people who are just there to get a buzz or find out what's going on was really kept low. And, you know, interface, maybe it's 40, 50%. Uh, but I think particularly... Uh, if you're serious about change, you go through changes yourself. So you start from being outraged and you want other people to hear your outrage. Mm -hmm. And then you realize at a certain point, um, very often that outrage isn't enough because that you're up against entrenched interests, ideologies, power structures. So you go, okay, well, how do we, how do we get to that point? And then very often, I think for many people in their second movement or their second campaign, once they've won or lost or given up, um, you have to think about it a little bit more strategically. You have to go, what do we think we are doing here? Um, and we're lucky, you know, in Ireland is an extreme case, about 60% of 18 to 21 year olds go to third level. But also we have a huge tradition of working class self-education. So when I was going to college, the people who had books in their houses were not the property owning middle classes. Very true. They killed working class people. And not only from political traditions, the all sorts of weird shit people had in their houses. Yeah. Um, but the idea that reading is and thinking is somehow a privilege is daft. You're also, I mean, it's obviously it's not, 
restricted to um, projects like Interface. I mean, I know you've just released a book yourself. Um, do you want to talk about that maybe briefly? Give us a sense of how that fits into this political practice. Sure, yeah. Um, so with a couple of colleagues, I dug up this Dubliner who had, so he'd been a sailor. Uh, he'd, he'd emigrated about the age of 14 to Liverpool and then the States. Uh, worked, so works his way across the Atlantic, um, works his way up and down the coast as a sailor. And then he's a hobo across the States for maybe a couple of years. And then apparently he's a sailor again, crossing the Pacific. Um, and at a certain point, uh, he winds up in Rangoon, where he becomes a Buddhist monk. Hmm. So this is 1900. And there is a situation that as an Irish person, he quite recognizes, which is that you can't attack the empire directly. But the empire comes with this religious fringe that there is an official established religion and there is local native religion and the empire cannot be seen to stomp too brutally on native religion mm. but at the same time so the british army in rangoon keeps cannons pointed at the schwedagon the big pagoda which is a very effective threat to burmese buddhists so uh, he remakes himself he's already a fire-breathing atheist so he's a working class atheist, late 19th century variety. And he starts using this stuff as a Buddhist monk to attack Christian missionaries, the length and breadth of Asia. And just as in Ireland, this is a key part of the anti-colonial movement. Uh, so it's really interesting. Uh, and I'll just say two things about it. One is he had learned to organize by the time he turns up as this 44-year-old. Yeah. So this is a guy, he's got different aliases, he's put under police and intelligence surveillance, he's tried for sedition, uh, he's got 25 years strangely missing in his bio, he fakes his own death and he eventually disappears. <laughs> so uh, somebody like that has clearly learned where to be a successful agitator in several countries, yeah. presumably from some of the many different radical working class traditions, Fenianism, anarchism, labor struggles, who knows? Um, we tried and failed to find the bugger before he became a Buddhist monk. Uh, but there's a whole chapter which uh, I thought was very kind of Irish left archive because he ran his own publishing outfit. So mm. after years of um, engaging with the newspapers, doing little um, flyers, uh, getting people to write in on his behalf or writing in anonymously, he starts publishing these pamphlets and he starts distributing them in absolutely vast numbers. Uh, so there was a whole story of trying to work out, uh, as a Buddhist monk, if you go on tour, if you are a celebrity, which he was, people give you the mobile wealth they have, which is, let's say, women's silver jewellery. If people are moved to make a donation, that's probably what it is. Mm. As a monk, you're not allowed to touch that. But amazingly enough, his sidekick is a jewel merchant. <laughs> so the donations come in, 
they are sold, what do you do with that? Well, it's very easy to print stuff. And in fact, he's got this newspaper editor who is willing to print his pamphlets. So this is where the money goes. And then there's an organization that gets these pamphlets out to all these little villages and runs bookstores distributing pamphlets. Oh, fantastic. I feel this world is not, you know, the Buddhist mug and the silver bracelets is a bit far away from our time, but some of the rest of it. The problem of it, distribution has been cracked before then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's the, you know, so, so that's where interface and so on come in. From my point of view, for a political publication, and all of these are political in some way, distribution is the politics. So the question of who is reading it is absolutely central to the politics of it. To talk about the content separate from the readership uh, is meaningless. It's communication, including, of course, then people writing for you. And there's that huge shift for us when we go online, which means, of course, we no longer need to worry about Eason's. Uh, of course, people will now uh, access this from Manila or Quito or wherever it be without needing, you know, to email us and say, please, can you send me a copy in the post? But equally, we don't have necessarily the same kind of relationship with them that we do. If somebody goes into a pub with, you know, a shoulder bag full of onfoblach, mm-hmm a hippie zine in the health food shop or whatever. So there is a different kind of challenge there in making it not a one-way distribution. And we're on the, I hope we're at the extreme of a curve there because Ireland from below coexists with indie media and Irish indie media is quite involved technically in creating the interactive web. So Irish (laughs) media specifically does some of the technicalities that makes indie media websites more interactive, really good spaces, uh, as the Irish one is for a very long time, Mm. comparatively for movements to engage with one another. Uh, Much to the disturbance of, uh, let's say, on Fublocht, who are horrified that people would talk back, or the socialist workers who at a certain point issue a fatwa telling their members not to use indie media. This is sustainable. Everybody has to move out. But then the commercialization of the web, the shift back to Facebook and Twitter and so on, allows all the organizations, including the NGOs and so on, the amnesties and the green pieces, to corral their members their audience back in this space of a fundamentally passive audience. That's the challenge that we've got to overcome now, which is how to democratize that again, how to create more genuine dialogue, not just, like I said, between movements, countries, traditions, or whatever, but between the writers and the readers. Mm. How do we, really nail that, not as a kind of little cunning idea, but as something that very large numbers of ordinary activists actually want to do. Uh, and we, we haven't got it yet. That That's a fantastic, though slightly depressing note to um, conclude <laughs> this discussion on. It's really, it's, it's, I mean, I, I, I've been thinking right the way through the, 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 the time we've had here. There's so many areas that 
it'll be such a pleasure to discuss this further with you and hopefully at some point we will be able to but that's i think that final thought is just yeah it's 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 sobering for want of a better word well the class that owns the means of material production normally owns the means of mental production as well yeah so it's always going to be a battle that is yeah that's that back in any way that that is a challenge for our movements and will always be yeah lauren thanks a million for giving us your time and your insight and and an overview of the periodicals you've been involved in you continue to be involved in and um uh, we're actually in faces now in the left archive uh, along with our and uh, thank you so much thank you